Hello friends, this is Leslie Mathis in the Multifamily Streamline podcast. I just celebrated my 19th anniversary in the business where I started in a very entry-level position and wish there was a podcast of all things apartments back in the day. My hope is this podcast will be a resource for you to grow in your career and assist in property and portfolio performance. Today, I'm so excited to announce our first ever guest, Sharon Hatfield, COO at CF Real Estate Services. We are here in Napa for the Multifamily Social Media Summit, where the dream for this podcast began. Thank you so much for agreeing to do an interview with me for the Multifamily Streamline podcast. This is our second episode, and I'm really excited to start it off with you. And um, it dawned on me when we were planning this that um, even though I've worked with you for four years now as your client, I've never heard your story of how you got into the industry. I feel like I've told the story a lot, so I'm sorry you haven't heard it. I don't know that it's that intriguing. My story is a lot like um, so many other people in the industry. No one thinks that they're going to get started that way. So, um, But I'm happy to tell you kind of how it went down. So today I'm Chief Operating Officer at CF Real Estate Services based in Atlanta. And we are an owner-operator and also third-party <clears throat> management company. We have about 26,000 units, about 10,000 of those units we own ourselves and manage those. And then the rest of it's third party. So the majority of what we have is fee managed um, and probably disproportionately will always be larger on that side, just based on how we operate. And the largest footprint we have is really in the Sunbelt of the Southeast, but we extend all the way out to the West, all the way up to the North, um, up to DC, and then down into Florida. And so um, I've been at the company since January of 2015. So I just celebrated my five-year anniversary. And then last year was actually CF's 15-year anniversary as a company. So um, <clears throat> really happy to be a part of that. And as I kind of tell you about my journey and getting there, I'll touch a little bit on how my experience at this organization, um, how it came about and I guess why I took this job and, and what it's what it's done for my career. So like so many, I started out not even knowing that the apartment industry, multifamily industry was even a job. I had Me too. I had no idea. <clears throat> I didn't even know that people leased apartments. I don't, I don't know how I thought people got apartments, but yes. I had no idea it was a job. So I had started in the real estate appraisal industry had gone to school and I was married at the time and he was going to school and we both were kind of trying to figure out what we we're going to do. He ended up getting a, uh, a transfer with his work um, to Durham, North Carolina. Oh. And I was raised in North Georgia. So I'd spent, you know, 21, 22 years in Georgia. And we thought this is a really fun, exciting opportunity. We, we know absolutely no one in Durham. Let's pack our bags and move. Sound like a really fun thing. So that's exactly what we did. At that point, I had already started into my career and I was in the real estate appraisal business. I thought I was going to be an appraiser and not even necessarily because I enjoyed it. It's another one of those things where a friend of a friend of a friend got me a job while I was going to school. I was also serving in restaurants. So I had a little bit of customer service experience. I'd worked in dress shops on the side. Um, and this I thought was the professional career for me. So we moved to Durham. He took his job 
And we were looking for apartments and we ended up finding an apartment community right on the edge of Duke Forest uh, near Duke University. And it was a lease up. It was a brand new property. And we were on a golf cart and the leasing consultant said, really, you looking for a job? And I said, yeah, I'm going to be looking for something. Here's what I do. And she said, oh, we should work here part time while you interview. I said, well, what would I do? Just drive this golf cart? And she <laughs> said, she's like, yeah, you just drive the golf cart around and you just show people the apartment. And so I immediately shifted from thinking I was looking for my own apartment to watching this girl show me this empty unit and then take a spot to the pool. And it just seemed so luxurious. And so I'm at like 24, maybe at the time I thought, well, okay, I could do this. This would be a great part-time job and I'll still get my big girl job and interview. So I applied, I came in, I interviewed with the manager and a regional manager and I kept hearing the term lease up and I really didn't even understand the concept of that, but realized pretty soon um, they were only about 20% pre-lease. So it was early in on the, the development. It was a small company based out of Charlotte, North Carolina called Charter Properties. So a lot of people obviously had worked there. A lot of people had come from Summit and ended up going there, which is kind of how I got into a lot of different jobs in my future. So I ended up getting hired on as a part-time leasing consultant and started interviewing. And I was working at the restaurant at the same time. So I had lots of stuff going on. And I just started picking up additional hours and part-time went to full-time because I was enjoying it. My first day on the job is the funny story of all of this. There was no training at this organization. So I was asked to just show up on a Saturday and it was actually a pool party. All the people that they had leased to that had not moved in yet were going to come. So it was kind of a grand opening pool party. If you With will. a keg of beer. With a keg of beer. I was told I had two jobs. Keep the keg and the little plastic pool full of alcohol and take the keys and keep people going to and from the model if they want to see it. Yes. And I was told to wear a bikini. <laughs> and that is exactly what I did. So I'll have to show you to this day. I still have the picture, a picture of my first day on the job. That was my, it the my, Polaroid kind? Um, it was a, it was a legit photo and uh, not digital, but it was, it was a legit photo. Um, my husband took it. It, it was ridiculous. So I, I have, I have a picture of my first day in this industry in a bikini. I love it. No training. Um, so I did the, you know, the ultimate uh, faux pas, which is I walked in and said, well, this is the living room. This is the kitchen. This is the dining room. So it was, it was a terrible tour. Very, very Vanna. Very Vanna. Um, but I ended up absolutely killing it because I was great at sales. So I was an amazing leasing consultant. And I remember thinking, I, this is, this is fun, but this is not what I want to do when I grow up. So I'm going to probably quit. And I got a call one day and I was still working at the restaurant too, because I had two jobs and they said, Hey, the company, our property is getting bought. You'll, you'll need to come in tomorrow. No, you're not scheduled to work, but you need to come in. This is a big deal. I was like, what? What, is all, what does that mean? I showed up. Everything had been disrupted. Everything had been thrown away. It was a complete takeover. And at that time, Archstone had come in and it, Security Capital at the time had purchased the property and it was a complete takeover. It was going to be a rebrand. I didn't understand what any of that meant, but what I did know is that someone stuck a job description in front of my face and it said assistant manager and I was told to sign it. And I signed it and I called my husband. I was like, I think I might've gotten a promotion. I don't even know what's happening right now. I was, I was an assistant manager. 
had a manager that had been promoted early. She was horrible. She was scared. She didn't want to do the job. Oh, your first manager. My first manager. She she was out of her element. And so she asked if um, she could, you know, use me to really help her get some confidence because I was really great with the customers. Helped her a, a lot, but then I realized I'm doing her job. This is not going to work. So I decided to quit. I tendered my resignation and the regional begged me to stay. She says, hold on. She talked to my manager and the manager said, you should promote Sharon. She should be the manager. I'll be her assistant. Craziest flip-flop ever. And it absolutely worked. She was a great assistant manager. She taught me what I didn't know about the technical pieces of the management side, but all the people stuff I could, I could handle. So I was a manager on this property in less than a year of being in the industry on a lease up. And so I took it through the end of the lease up and that was a great experience. It was 186 units. And so it gave me the opportunity to help this company continue to grow its footprint in other markets. So they had me go to markets to help shut down markets. I traveled up and down the East coast to help them open up Boston, New York city. Um, I, I got my, I got my experience in markets throughout the country, which a lot of people don't get the chance to do that. And so fast forward, I ended up becoming a regional within two years. And then um, they ended up creating a position for me in marketing in Atlanta after I lost my father. So I can, I left operations, I moved to Atlanta, and then I headed up um, a marketing division and really created the footprint of what marketing was for this company. And I traveled up and down the East Coast for about five years. Um, and then I transferred to a national role, moved to Denver, Colorado, and oversaw national marketing and communications for Archstone throughout the entire country and lived there for four years. So it was a wonderful experience. And then, you know, at some point I realized that marketing was fun. I love it. and I still do. But when you have a type A personality and you're an operator and you like to manage things, you miss having the ownership um, and being able to really um, put your fingerprint on the pulse of what's going on. So I decided to come back to operations. So I left Denver, moved back to the East Coast to Atlanta, started with Gray Star. And then with Gray Star, um, I was in Atlanta for maybe only a couple months. They moved me to Raleigh and Durham. And so I had op I oversaw operations there as well as in Charleston and then helped kind of grow that market and reposition it. And then they moved me to Nashville to do the same thing. So fast forward, um, I had another uh, small development company that I helped them start their management company with. And then I joined CF. And so I've been, as I said, I've been at CF for five years. And my reason for coming here was because I knew it was a company that needed restructured, it needed rebuilt, it needed repositioned, rebranded. And all of my years experience in working with companies that I had really positioned me to do what I did when I came here. Otherwise, I never, I would have been way in over my head and had no idea what I was doing. Um, so working for some great large companies and understanding what it takes to make those run helped me take a, you know, an organization, not necessarily failing, but really needed a jumpstart. It helped me do that. So that's kind of how I got to where I am today. I love it. I love that our stories are similar, especially in the beginning. I fell into the industry too. And but I started as a housekeeper and um, I wasn't good at that. And so like, <laughs> still not. And then so like the second day I was in the office. And um, so it, it it's funny how we do just kind of fall into it. So I guess it's safe to say like, traveling around, doing all those things in all the different markets and really starting things from the ground up. That's how you really got to your role now as COO mm -hmm. at CF. 
really is. Yeah. I have never been that afraid. I would say early on in my career, I was afraid of risk. Um, probably because I had not, it had not jumped off the cliff a, a few a lot of times. And so I, I had not failed. Um, and it took a couple of failures along the way to help me be comfortable with risk. And so at that point, I think that's been a huge differentiating factor for kind of how the last part of my career has been so successful because I haven't been afraid of anything really. And where I am today allows me to use my, my enterprising entrepreneurial spirit that I have. Cause it did feel like coming, even though it wasn't my company, it felt like coming to a startup and I approached it as if it was my company and you go to a lot of places and you're not able to do that. You're, you're one of 8,000 employees and, right. and here it was a little smaller at the time. It was about 800 employees, but I was in a position that allowed me to treat this like it's mine. And I had the autonomy to do what I needed to do. Um, and that made a huge difference. So in the last five years, how much has CF grown? Um, a lot. Well, I will tell you, when I joined, we were actually a lot larger. Um, so sometimes bigger is not always better. We were about 42,000 units when I joined in January 15. By design, strategically, we decided to downsize so that we could purposely upsize with the right portfolio. So I think we dropped just below 20,000 units. And we did that through making some tough decisions by terminating some clients, getting rid of some deals that were in tertiary markets where we had no one there to manage them. Um, and naturally through attrition, you start to lose employees through that as well. And that was okay because we knew that the company that existed before had been a, a combination of one company that had bought the management agreements of another one. And so I think they were struggling to find their identity. And so we were okay with that loss. Um, and then that enabled us to start really strengthening our core operating platform so that we had something really good. And then from the top down, we started to rebuild the organization. So all of the executives that are in place today are the same ones that um, our CEOs put into place. Um, you know, five years ago, we're still here. And then what we started to do is rebuild the teams all the way down. So it was like department by department. I had to build a marketing team. Um, I had to completely reshape and, and hire new people in operations. When I joined, absolutely no one had any modern day lease up experience. I was the only person that had ever done a lease up. So I was having to go to every lease up and, and, and take control even with the clients. And now I can say, fortunately, it's not the case. Um, but department by department, we rebuilt the organization. And so today we're back up to 26,000 units. But we make, we made more money at 20,000 units than we were making at 42 simply by changing the type of asset class that we were managing. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So all about strategy. All about strategy. And how it impacts the bottom line. It really does. So again, bigger is not always better. It's about the quality of what you have. And I think there has to be some type of value to you. And um, I mean, I think we've all taken over those properties where we didn't get to select the team and people weren't always a good fit or maybe they just weren't the right fit for that property. And sometimes there's just so much power in being able to put the right person in the right seat. And then refocus and and get to your goals that you're looking for. Absolutely, we had some of that too. <clears throat> it wasn't just you know everyone eliminated was eliminated and then moved on. We definitely had people that we could shift around and move. 
Um, we just experienced that, you know, there were other people as well who they had to sort of drink the Kool-Aid. We had, first of all, we had to redefine what our mission and goals were. And once we did that, either you sort of drank that Kool-Aid and you were on par- on board with that, or it just wasn't for you. It was too far of a departure from what the company had once been. And so it's been a fun experience to handpick all of the people that have joined the team who want to be a part of something bigger and the to, story to be a part of that story. And, um, you know, today we do a lot of internal engagement surveys and we ask our employees, why do you work here? What keeps you here? And, and what do you like about it? And every single time they create these word clouds where they take all of the buzzwords that were written in the comments and then blow them up. The biggest word in bold right in the center that's the most consistent in everyone's comments is three letters, F-U-N, fun. And that still right now gives me chills to think about because I got to be a part of that journey and build that. And if you asked anyone five years ago what it felt like, I don't even want to tell you (laughs) what the words would have been Um, because I think people were thirsty for something that just wasn't there and hadn't been created. So to be a part of that and watch people choose to stay with us, even if the path is not moving as quickly as they want, maybe they want to be a VP and it's not ready today, or maybe they don't even currently like their property that they're at. They stay because of the culture. And I think our Glassdoor reviews speak, um, really well to that um, because we do have people who leave larger organizations and multifamily and come to a smaller company like ours because they want to be a part of something bigger and something that feels very different. So it's, it's been great to be a part of that. How do you navigate some of that when, you know, essentially get half your portfolio you own and half is third party? Mm-hmm. Like how do you create that environment even though part of the portfolio is third party? Like, is that challenging? <clears throat> it's really not. Um, you know, it's typical when you're in third-party management, as you know, for clients, if we're trying to get a new deal, to ask me, well, how do I know you're going to put your best people on my deal versus an own deal? And here's my response, and it's truly a fact. I can get fired off a third-party deal. I'm not going to get fired on my own asset. <laughs> And so we have not um, had that challenge. And I know other companies have, and and there's a reputation out there for some where they do your best people or, you know, your own group. And we've we've just torn that wall down and and we've not even said, hey, if a regional has an owned assets, they only do owned assets. We split it up. They get to do an owned asset and they might have a couple of third-party clients. We like to diversify it. And that's helped us really keep people's path promising as well. Um, because sometimes if a portfolio sells or you have an RPM that has only one client and then all of a sudden that client decides to take management in house or they sell their portfolio, this person doesn't have a job anymore. So by diversifying, we've enabled people to get a lot of different experience from a lot of different people. Cause we think you learn that way. And, um, it keeps us honest. We've got our best people on owned assets and on third parties. Right. You know, it's gotten really tough to recruit today. Mm-hmm. How do you recruit that top talent for either owned or third mm-hmm. party? It is extremely tough. It is a little easier for us in the last couple of years than it certainly was five years ago when we didn't have a big reputation to go off of. Reputation has been for us our number one recruiting resource. And when we didn't have that five years ago, I was 
I was really having to do the, please believe me. Like I'm building something here. Come trust me. Yes. And I had a lot of people who took that blind faith and made the jump. And so that was harder. The reason it's a little easier now is because people, you've got a generation of millennials who do want to be a part of something bigger. They want to work for a company who's doing something for society, for the environment. They want to feel like they're leaving their mark. And at the end of the day, they want to have fun. And because everyone's using online resources to do all the research before they ever go, Glassdoor for us is our number one recruiter. Um, if anyone hears that a, a job is available at our company and they don't know anything about it and they don't know anyone there, they go on to Glassdoor and I've heard them come in and I've interviewed them and they said, well, I, did, I didn't know your organization, but I read your reviews and this sounds like something I want to be a part of. And then the rest of it's word of mouth because we do have so many loyal people who have come over and have helped build where we what we are today. They're ambassadors for our brand. So they're, they're posting stuff on the on the web, we don't have any formal program that tells our employees, you need to post this and you got to post that and it got to look like this. There's nothing. Everything you see is, is organic. It's authentic. And because people are so well connected, it's word of mouth. People, one of the number one reasons I, when I ask someone, why do you want to come to work here? And what do you know about us that excites you? Their answer is, well, I see people who have left XYZ company. They've come here. They're so happy. They're the happiest I've ever seen them. And I want to be a part of that. So that has been the best way for us to recruit because it is extremely competitive. People are leaving um, not just over a dollar or two anymore. People are making a lot of money. It's gotten um, a little nasty out there on you know the, the salary wars, the bidding wars. And sometimes we have to play it. I'm not going to lie. Um, you sort of have to, to compete in this space. But at the end of the day, if we can create a culture and an environment that makes people want to stay and want to be a part of that, then I'd rather have those people than someone who are trying to trace down the top dollar. Agreed. A hundred percent. I agree. It really has gotten tough today with um, the salaries out there. And um, so I love that. What about, so I think that probably has to speak somewhat to your leadership style. And um, can you tell us a little bit how you've led through some of the challenges and um, now going through all of that, what does your leadership style look like and how do you keep your folks motivated? And yeah, great question. Um, So really kind of ties into mentoring the team, right? Um, Most people that have worked with me in the past, if you ask them what it's like to work for me and People that I interview will go around the company and ask all the the interview round robin people like, well, what's it going to be like to interview with Sharon? What's it like to work with her? And the answer is pretty consistent. I am extremely open and direct and candid, sometimes to a fault. I'm going to say I'm probably guilty of hurting people's feelings. And I certainly don't intend to or mean to. I have just learned to be very direct because the more I beat around the bush and dance around it, uh, the more time we spend not getting to where I want to get. Well, and do you think also, like, I find that, and I hear that I'm very direct too, but when I dance around the subject to try to prevent from hurting somebody's feelings, I feel like the message gets diluted and mm-hmm. or misunderstood, if nothing else. Like, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say is not what they hear. Exactly. It is. And so my formula for providing that direct candid feedback is usually here's where we are. 
here's where I want to be. The steps that we, you, us, all of us took to get there were not the right ones. We're going to have to change or we're going to keep ending up where we are. So here's what I am observing that you need to do and that you need to change. And here's how I envision you getting there. And I try not to, I try not to give it all away and, and not give people the autonomy to solve their own problems. Because I, I do think it's important that they, they do take risks. They try to solve some of their problems on their own because I want them to fail. I actually want my employees to fail. The hardest part as a leader is to try to figure out where do you give them enough rope to let them fail because it's a safe fail? And where do you go, okay, this one might be catastrophic, so I can't let them fail on this one. That's my hardest job as a leader. But in general, I do want my team to take my candid feedback and figure out how to apply that for them because everyone's different. And then how do we end up at this place that we've agreed that we need to get to? Um, and then again, you know, along the way, it's not always easy. They, um, they may fail and we have to talk about those lessons learned, but I know I wouldn't have gotten where I got if I didn't have a lot of missteps and failures and I don't want them to be afraid of them. I will support them through it. Yeah. I would say the same thing in my career, but how do you ensure that in those little missteps or fails that it's actually a learning experience and it doesn't happen again? <clears throat> so it's exactly that. It's lesson learned conversations. So I, I schedule something with everyone that reports to me at least once a quarter. It's usually about once a quarter called blue sky reflection days. So everyone knows if I've put a blue sky date on your calendar. Is that what you call it? It's what I call it. Okay. It's a blue sky reflection day. So as soon as you get an invite on your calendar, that's blue sky day and it'll be blocked for nine to five, you know, nothing else can take priority that day unless there's a fire somewhere. You will not go to the office that day. You're going to dress down and we're going to meet somewhere offsite fun. And all we're going to do is reflect on either specific activities, processes, procedures, people problems, failures, opportunities, just blue sky. Me, really think about if we tear down all of the obstacles that are in our way, how can we be the most successful? And there's no paper and there's no computers. It's just us actually having a creative brainstorming strategic day. I My number one strength, if you're taking the, the strengths finder, test and you kind of know what your top five strengths are. My number one is strategic. Um, so what's good about that, and I, I do have executor in my top five, but what's good about me being a strategic person um, is that I tend to like to blow things up and disrupt them and I like to push people out of their comfort zone and to the point where they even tell me like, you're scaring me. I am so uncomfortable. And I'm like, bingo mission accomplished. That's what I wanted to do. The bad part about me being strategic is that sometimes it can take us a little longer to get to where we need to go. So I surround myself with really good executors because then when I start just continually disrupting and blowing up, they have to go share and we have to make a decision. And so they kind of ground me and pull me back into reality and I stop all the blue sky stuff. But I think surrounding myself with executors who can tactically accomplish what needs to get done is a great partnership for me. Um, so yeah, pushing people out of their comfort zones and having reflection conversations about what went right, what went wrong is what helps us learn together and adapt our path moving forward. 
So did you come up with blue sky on your own? I did. I had a, um, had a boss in the early two thousands. She didn't call it that, but I remember it was once a year. She would always just want to sit down and go somewhere. And I watched her and she, she didn't intentionally say this is what's occurring or what's happening, but we had those kinds of like deep soul searching conversations about business and, and personal stuff and, and strategy and what, what keeps us up at night and what motivates us. And I left those always feeling so inspired. And so I remember when I had my first, I didn't do it as an operator initially, but when I had my first marketing team that I was building, I realized then how important that was, especially to a creative group, because a creative group can get really bogged down in a corporate environment and they need those creative outlets. And they need, a, they need a way to just tear it all down and just think about the endless possibilities. And so I started it with them and through the years I've continued it even now back into operations and all of the other departments that I oversee and even groups that aren't creative. It's hard for them to get in the groove. Like they're, they're continually trying to make a to-do list and start tactical. And I have to ground them and go, no, 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 slow down. We're not solving the problems today. So that has been uh, something that I have been passionate about. And everyone that works with me, I think at first, if you're, if you're not used to that creative element, um, you get used to it and you, and you get excited about it. And we do solve a lot of problems and it may not be in that day we do it, but going back later, I've had team members come to me and say, you know what? I was thinking about our meeting a couple of weeks ago and something hit me. So I think it helps people's creative juices flow where there might be a creative block. Do you think it also helps with like some of the hard conversations, like, or giving them kind of the freedom to know that if something doesn't go perfect quarterly, we're going to reflect on it and we're going to figure it out. And then I think that would have to open up this communication of, oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to sit down and talk about this. So it makes it a safer zone to talk about things that are hard, Mm -hmm. even before you get to that blue sky meeting. You nailed it. As a matter of fact, um, based on what I have sort of created in my career along the way, I decided to uh, partner. I oversee HR as well. So I decided to partner with my, I have HR marketing, training, um, construction, maintenance, operations. I think, I think that's everything. So I decided, Is there anything else? I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I decided to partner with my head of HR and training. And um, years ago, actually, just as I had joined, the company had already gotten away of gotten rid of the typical review process that we've all had. You know, it's the end of the year. You get this three, four page document. You have to write the self-assessment and then your boss has to write the self-assessment. You get a ranking, meets expectations, exceeds expectations. You go through this process and I think we all agree it doesn't feel authentic. And some people for the very first time get to hear how they're doing at the end of the year. It's completely backwards. So if you, if you read a lot, a lot of companies, Fortune 500 companies have abandoned that. So we did as well. What we did wrong, I, I don't know that I would have changed it because, again, I, I love the mistakes and learning what we learn from it. But what we did do wrong is we didn't replace it with anything until now. So over the last year and a half, I've been working on fine tuning this and it was not an easy process. I decided to blow up the review process and create something very different for a company. 
And it wasn't easy because I work with, a, again, a lot of executors. And so they're all ready just to get something done and get across the finish line. And for me, it had to feel, it, it's like, it was like drawing or painting something. I just never felt right. And it had to feel right in order for me to get across the finish line. So it took a while to build. But what we did is build something we're calling the CFP. See what I did there? Okay. It's called the Constant Feedback Program, um, but obviously plays into the, our, our initials for our acronym for our company. So the CFP, Constant Feedback Program, is designed to do exactly what you said. So instead of filling out this mundane document at the end of the year, we have developed a quarterly program where you have to sit down and it's not to go through these silly little exercises that we did in the past. It's actually to review goals. So you set specific goals at the beginning of the year. You measure those goals quarterly. But here's the kicker, and here's what's really different. We've actually given a leader all of the questions that they should sit down and have in these Blue Sky Reflection Day sessions with their employee. Questions like, what am I doing that keeps you up at night? What should I do more of as a leader to support you? What should I do less of? What should you have been recognized for this last quarter that you weren't recognized for? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Do you feel like you have the support that you need from your peers? What have you done to make yourself better? What have you done to help grow your own career? What can we as a company help you do to get to the next step? So on and on and on. So imagine there being about 50 questions and we we divided those 50 questions up into specific quarters based on kind of the life cycle of a year, right? In the big, the first quarter, you really want to reflect on what happened the last year. In the second quarter, it's still about, okay, we got these goals. How are we doing? Are we getting there? Third quarter, it's a, it's a big temperature check. Are you doing okay? Am I doing okay? Is the company making you feel, are you having fun? That's one of the questions. Are you having fun at work? And then um, goes into the fourth quarter. Um, and so one of the things that underlying, um, I think, principles that made us create this constant feedback program was around the fun part. We've done such a great job at culture that every time we would go to the drawing board and build out a review process, it didn't feel fun. And we just wadded up and throw it in the trash can and said, I don't like this. It doesn't feel good. And so now we've built something that is really the basis of what I have done my whole career, which is having quarterly in the moment conversations where I can ask you for feedback And at that time, I can also give you direct feedback. And so they don't have to wait till the end of the year to hear how they're doing. And at the end of the day, all I really want is I want managers and um, their team, I want them to have open, honest dialogue and conversations. And so the intent of this is whatever that looks like, whether they do in the office, whether they go to the park, I don't care where they do it, but I want people to have open, honest dialogue questions. I love it. Yeah. It's so good. You know, you've talked a lot about fun, but as a third-party client I of yours, I've never heard of, like, Leslie, can I close the property today so my team can go do this? Can I, we're going to be short-staffed because I need to create a fun environment for the team. Mm-hmm. Like, so how do you do it while not step, because that's hard as a client mm-hmm. to know, like, you know, being a client that's all lease ups and um, pace and rate are probably our, our our biggest concerns. And so closing a lease up office just so the team can have fun sometimes doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. 
but I don't know that you've ever asked me to do that. So mm-hmm. how do you create a fun environment? Because mm-hmm. you must be doing it well if this is all of the feedback. How do you do that? Yeah, you know, we, I don't think we've ever asked to close office for any of that. I know a lot of companies have. They'll, they'll shut down across the portfolio and have a big powwow. Everyone comes in. So we we have all those powwows, but we we try to segment so that at the end of the day, we have a job to do, and that job is to run that property. That's the most important thing. And so I never want all of the fun that we do to to get in the way of what the most important thing is, because if we're not there for our customers, then we're failing at our job. And so example, if, if we're doing something to engage the managers and service managers and have fun with them and help them celebrate, um, you know, the last year's achievements and get educated and plan for the future, then we have an event for managers and service managers. So there's still people back at the property. Um, if we want to focus on um, really growing the next tier of leadership and, you know, getting assistant managers, financial training, learning how to be a property manager, um, and then celebrating their wins. We'll have an assistant manager retreat if that's what we need to do. Um, you know, it, it would be great if everyone could all get together in one big room and have a big powwow. But the truth be told, I think people like to be also with their peers because they can relate to them more. And so most of the things that we do globally, we try to keep it, at their peer level. Um, there are some integrated opportunities, but for the most part, we keep it segregated to that, which allows us to keep the properties open. Because again, if we're not succeeding at the property, then I can't pay for any of these events. Right. You know, and I know some clients don't mind. And I think, you know, once our deal is stabilized, it, it, it feels okay to close sometimes, but at the end of the day, we still have 500 people that live at the deal. And if there's nobody in the office or the temp doesn't know where the bathroom is, then it becomes challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's even more stressful for the team too. And, you know, again, I'm sure every client's different, but, you know, we're happy to pay for events after work and we really Mm -hmm. like team building. And, um, but I think I also like my properties open. Yeah. Um, so I think you guys do a great job with that. You know, you said that you oversee all of these things. Like, I can't even imagine what else would be um, at your company that you don't oversee. But and you you hold a, a a very big title and you've had this successful career. But when I'm with you, even as your client, not as your friends, I always just feel like you're the most grounded person. I have never felt like you have this prestigious title or that you have all of these responsibilities. Like when I'm with you, I feel like I'm your only client. And, and again, I feel like you're very grounded as a leader. Like, how do you do all of that? So I knew you were going to ask me that question, obviously ahead of time. And I have to tell you, it was the hardest question for me to ponder. So over the last couple of days, I've been thinking about it and even had to ask a couple of people that are close to me, it's like, I, I don't even know the answer to this for me. So can you tell me? And they, they laugh and giggle. And I've heard a couple of different answers. <laughs> and so I think where I ended on this is not even what everyone else even said to me. I had to dig deep for this one. I don't intentionally or consciously work on this. Like, I don't think, let me stay grounded and let me do that. It just comes second nature. First and foremost, I think that it probably stems from my upbringing. 
Um, I have a very hardworking father. He, he would work 10 hours a day um, in a leadership capacity in, in a cotton mill in a factory. And then he would come home on summer nights and work till 9.30, 10 p.m. in a really large garden that fed the family. So I had a very modest, poor upbringing. Um, from a family of five, there were three kids, but my brother and sister are about 10 years older than me. So for a period of time, I felt like an only child. Um, but, you know, a family of five lived in a 900-square-foot, two-bedroom, one-bath house in the middle of nowhere. Oh, wow. And so... I watched my father um, single-handedly really provide for his family and struggle for them. And I know that the, I, I watched the stress that it caused him and, and he, he was a worry wart and he passed away of a heart attack at 67. And I, I know why, because he's just, he was just wound up and stressed and it really left an impact on me. I, I appreciated his hardworking ethic, ethic and I wanted to mimic that. But I also know that I don't want to die of a heart attack in my 60s. And so I've always tried to figure out how do I balance those two and how do I take the best of what I learned from my father with that. And I remember being a little girl, knowing that we were poor, and I remember not even asking dad if I could have, I was out of a pencil or a paper, and I didn't want to even ask him if I could have any more because I thought that's going to create stress and burden for him, and I don't want to do that. And something, somewhere in all of that, I think as I've grown older, that has to be something that has grounded me in, in that we're all out here struggling. We all have, you know, all of our own little stories and things that we're battling and everyone's is different. And not one person to me is having a harder time than the other because it's all relative to what you've experienced and what you grew up with. I don't want to be a burden on anyone. I don't like asking people for anything. At the end of the day, I'm extremely competitive I just want to win. <laughs> and if we can figure out how to do that together without causing a lot of stress on each other and <laughs> having heart attacks and have a fun time doing it, um, then I am pushing out my sleeves and I'm right there in the midst of it. I, I'm not going to bark orders for people and tell them how to do it because I enjoy being a part of that process. And growing up from humble beginnings, I think, helped me keep that grounding. I love that. I love that um, not... I think sometimes when we bring those, like, I don't, I've, even if they're complaints or um, burdens, as you called them, when we bring that into the situation that it doesn't even need to be, we make even just that common goal harder than it has to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of my takeaways for this year of like keeping those things separate and mm -hmm. maybe having a different outlet for them if it, you know, like a, a vent up session instead of a gripe session when things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. Or um, I think that's just such a good learning experience. So now you've had this successful career, you've navigated through all these different opportunities, and you're looking back at your teams and you're looking at these um, associates that are just now entering our industry and they're really anxious to grow their career. What's your advice to them? I, I love that question. And once I got asked, I was on a, a panel um, a couple of years ago. It was a women's panel. It was women's C-suite. Um, it was AIM, I think, um, in Huntington Beach. I love that. I had three strong women. And someone in the audience asked a similar question. And they said, as a woman, how do I get to be where you are? 
because I, I'm sure it was a millennial that said it, like I'm ready to be chief, whatever. The funny thing is, is I never had, this sounds so contrary to everything you read in business books. I never had those lofty goals. I never thought I was going to grow up and be what I am today or anything beyond that. I just thought I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be happy. And whatever, wherever path I go, if, if, if I'm winning at that, then it's okay, no matter what I am. And so I think what I would tell people is don't get hung up on titles. Yes. Don't, don't set expectations for yourself that will cause yourself to be disappointed in yourself. The most important relationship you're ever going to have in your entire life is with yourself. And if you're not happy with yourself and you're not happy and you're not secure, um, then it's going to be really difficult to go down any path or ever have success in life. And so my advice is to be patient, have tenacity, not saying don't give up and don't have dreams and goals, just be realistic. And, you know, I've never in my entire career asked for a promotion and I actually have never had to ask for a raise. They've always come to me. And I think it's because I want, I take the approach that I want my work and I want the, 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 uh, the success of my work. I want that to be what speaks for itself. And I think that's what people need to focus on. And obviously if you're in a place or a situation where you feel like you're not getting recognized, then maybe you're not at the right place. And I would say, instead of sitting there and being disgruntled about it, don't ask for something. If you feel like this is not even the right culture for you, go to an organization that is going to recognize you. And so that's something I've been very passionate about is if I feel like I'm working with a group of people or for leadership that's not recognizing me and my path is probably not going to go where it needs to be. I'm not going to sit around and ask for it and then take it and then stay there a year and then move on. Mm, Now I'm going to move somewhere that does recognize me. So I never have to ask for it. And so that's probably my advice. And then I think people get hung up on feeling like they have to have best friends at work and that they love everyone they work with. And I will tell you, you don't, I do want to love who I work with the majority of the time because I spend more time with them and that is my family. Um, but I have learned more in my career from the people that were bad leaders, um, that were bad peers, um, and that were horrible employees than I have from the people that I enjoyed working with. And so sometimes you've got to suck it up a little bit and enjoy for what it's worth, the experience that you're having that may not be ideal because you will leave that and you'll take something away and you'll be a better person for it. Yes. I think you nailed it with that too. Like as I've thought back over the last 19 years of my career, I think there's been so many learning opportunities in what I don't want to be versus what I want to be like making sure that my leadership style doesn't align with that, you know, boss that I had that was not a good fit for me and just learning how I wanted to treat people and how I wanted to grow my portfolio and Mm -hmm. those types of things. And I think that's great advice for sure. It is. I say just, and stay educated. Um, I read a lot. I think it's the average CEO reads something like 60 books a year or something ridiculous. My goal's 30 this year, so I'm failing at half of that, but (laughs) I'll do the best I can. 
I, I, I think people need to focus on improving themselves instead of focusing on improving others. Cause if you, if you work on yourself, you naturally, the rest pro- will come. Yeah. You'll project that and you get what you give. Is there anything that you read every day or weekly? I have a few uh, crazy little things I do. So I have a little book I bought and I get a different one every year. It's this year it's called five minutes in the morning and it, it may be a different type of reflection book and they're all over the place. It's a lot of those uh, live with intention um, and kind of mindfulness books. I sit down every morning for five minutes, nothing on. Um, I'm just present. I'm listening to whatever it might be. It could be the traffic outside. It might be a bird outside the window. It could be the buzz of uh, the refrigerator. And I just sit. And then um, you're you're prompted with a, a thoughtful question. It might be internal. It might be, what do you hear? It just might be, what do you want to accomplish? And you sit down, you set the timer for five minutes and you write. And you don't think about what you're writing and you don't read what you're writing. You just write for five minutes and then you stop. And then you go back and read it. And so that little mindfulness for me, um, has given, has really helped me do my own inner self-reflection. So I do that every day. Um, I have a gratitude journal I do at night, um, cause I really want to be thankful for all of the people in my life that I feel like are, are shaping and continue to shape my future and fill me up, fill my bucket up. Um, and then I have always two to three books I'm reading at one time. Me too. Yeah. So I'll have a fiction book that is my escape. Let me just get away and pretend like I'm living on some beach somewhere with this, this, you know, amazing couple, um, which is I'm reading something about paradise or something now. Um, and then I have a self-help book, um, which is usually more internal, uh, reflective about being a better person or how to follow away all those stresses that you have in your head and what they mean and the deep meanings of them. And then I usually have a business development book about how I can make my team better or how I can make the company better. Um, so I, I don't have any specifically, um, but that is kind of constantly what I do for women in the industry, because I think it's an important topic right now. And a lot of people who have worked with me have heard me say this. Um, there um, is a book called um, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office um, that a lot of people have read before. Um, she says, it's Lewis Frankel is the author. And she also writes a book called nice girls. Don't get rich. Nice girls just don't get it. And then there's one that says see Jane lead. And so all of those are specifically designed for women because growing up and in our generation, we've been taught that women should behave a certain way at home in a corporate environment. And it basically helps you um, break down all of those misconceptions about how a woman should act and help you succeed as a woman in a corporate environment. And I have, I've recommended those books to all of my new hire women who are up and coming and trying to figure out their place in the office. Um, and it's been really helpful. So I enjoyed reading her series of books. I'm going to have to check those out. So I get this question all the time and I'm terrible at it. So I'm going to ask you, um, oftentimes people ask me like, how do you, do work-life balance and I don't do it well. And it's something that I focus on. Um, but how do you handle work-life balance? I think I suck at it too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) makes me feel better. Yeah. Um, people that work around me will probably tell you I'm a workaholic. So 
and, and for me, that's okay. I'm not upset at it. I do live alone. I don't have a, I don't have any children. I, I don't have, unfortunately, any animals to keep me company. So it work is my career and that's okay. It's, I love it. And it's, it's the path I've chosen, but Hey, not everyone can do that. Right. There, there's people who do have families that need their attention and, and there's, there's other outlets out there. And so I also have to be cognizant as a leader that not everyone in my group is going to have the same mindset as me. And I don't expect everyone to do it. So the first thing for me personally, um, because I do want to make sure I do create my own life balance and enjoy life because it's not all about work. I schedule everything, absolutely everything. So that five minutes in the morning that I told you about, it's on my calendar. Um, when I go to the gym after that, it's on my calendar. Um, when I take a break at home and I know I'm not going to read emails for two hours or an hour while I eat my dinner, it's on my calendar. So I schedule absolutely everything. If someone comes in and says, Hey, can I get a few minutes with you later today? I want to talk about something. I'm not one of those that just says, yeah, sure. Just swing on by. I immediately look at my calendar and I say, great. Would you like two to two thirty, or would you like three to four? What what's available? I don't allow interruptions to happen unless they are emergencies. And so there are some people that I work with that they fly by the seat of their pants. So that probably makes them a little crazy because I want everything calendarized, but it helps keep me sane and it helps me stick to the things that are do, doing the things that are important to me and that I don't sacrifice those. And so I always say, just schedule everything. Um, that and helps you prioritize and helps you keep fun a part of your life. I, I, I schedule the only time I have nothing on my calendar are the weekends. And then I go the exact opposite. That's when I actually say the weekends are for me. And if I do have to do something professionally, I'll still get on the calendar. But for the most part, I'm not even going to, I'll go on a vacation and I may not even want to chart out everywhere I'm going to go. I'm just saying I'm going on vacation. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'll figure it out when I get there. So I fly by the seat of my pants personally and professionally, I schedule it all out. Oh my gosh, I feel so aligned with that. Last year, my word for the year was intentional. Mm-hmm. And I already felt like I lived and died by my calendar, but it, it really became important last year to me. So everything is on my calendar. But on the weekends, I have nothing on my calendar. Mm-hmm. So if something though hits my calendar on the weekend, I might miss it because I'm mm-hmm. not used to looking for it. And Same thing. What I tell people too is that work-life balance can look different for everybody. Mm. And if somebody says to you, don't work at night, well, that might not be the right fit for you because, you know, some of us have commitments in the early evenings and we like to focus on that. And then it makes us feel better for our next day Mm. to spend an hour cleaning up our emails or for pretty much my whole career, but at least the last 10 years of it, I work on Sunday evening so that my Monday is not Mm -hmm. too painful or too overloaded. And, but that is just what makes me be able to sleep on Sunday night. I'm not worried about Monday because I've knocked out Mm -hmm. a portion of it. So I think it's also doing what's best for you and not getting caught up with what everybody else is saying to you. Yeah, totally, um, totally agree. And I try to be sensitive to other people's needs as well. Right. So yeah. Um, I don't sleep well. Sometimes I wake up at three in the morning and 
I try not to send emails, but sometimes I do. But fortunately, there, there's things where you can send a delay. Um, but I know who from my team can handle the 3 a.m. emails when they get up at 6 and they're going to see it. And they're the people that might stress them out. So I try to avoid that. Yeah, I love that. I need to do better at that. I'm not um, good at scheduling them. But I try to tell people, like, just get to it when you can. Yeah. You know, um, I don't expect it a response at 4 a.m. So this has been so good. Thank you so much for doing it. I've enjoyed a couple fun days at Napa with you. And then I'm glad we could finish off with a podcast. Absolutely fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I appreciate the time to reflect and think about all of this stuff. It was a great experience for me. So good. Thank you. That's a wrap, friends. But join me back here in two weeks. New episodes will launch every month on the 14th and 30th. In the meantime, go make it a great day. And don't forget to set those 2020 stretch goals we discussed in episode one.